You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is John Mitchell, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this ALNAP webinar on how to make humanitarian action more relevant. So just a couple of points uh, before we begin. I understand there's a, a lot of people online and throughout the event, you will have the opportunity to submit questions uh, via the chat room, which is under the webinar window on the ODI website. And of course, please uh, feel free to use Twitter if you would like to share any thoughts that you may have, any ideas you may have with a wider audience. And the hashtag for that is ALMAP32. So uh, a few words of introduction from me before we get going. Some of you will have attended the last ALMAP annual meeting in Berlin. And you'll know that the, the mismatch between what people really need and what they actually receive from humanitarian agencies has been a problem for decades. And it still is. Now, I think that we have made uh, understanding progress in understanding why this is the case. And I think that those of you who were there at the meeting will remember the discussions around the inadequacies of a supply driven model and the way that we're all conditioned to see the world by our own culture and experiences. And we all know that we can still improve when it comes to inclusion, getting a holistic understanding of the affected population, adapting to new circumstances, co-creation, and so on and so forth. And I think that my big takeaway from the annual meeting is that being relevant is more to do with relationships than transactions. So it's not solely about supply and demand, but also about who we're dealing with and finding the very best way to work in context. Now, of course, all of that is much easier said than done. And uh, the challenge that we all face now is multiplied many times over, of course, due to the COVID-19 virus which of course is causing grave concern to all operational agencies. Now, I know that the UN have recently launched uh, their emergency appeal, and I read in the paper yesterday that the, the virus has reached Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh, which as you know, is about eight miles away from the world's biggest refugee camp, where I think there are about uh, 850,000 Rohingya people. So what can be done about this? Uh, there are massive questions uh, today about the system's ability to provide relevant aid in such dire circumstances. And to help us address these questions, we have three special, four special guests today, all of whom, or at least three, of, three out of four of whom are dealing with these issues on a daily basis. Uh, and let me introduce them to you now. So from Geneva, we have uh, Ombretta Baggio. Hi, Ombretta. Give us a wave, thank you. She's uh, currently co-leading with UNICEF and the World Health Organization on the COVID-19 Risk Community and Communication Engagement Program. 
and she's been the Federation's global coordinator for the Ebola response in the Democratic Republic of Congo since 2017. And I understand that Umbretta lived in Africa for 10 years, where she worked as a specialist on communication for development and HIV prevention with UNICEF and UNAIDS. Sitting in Copenhagen, uh, top left-hand corner of my screen is Volker Hulz. Hi, Volker. Give us a wave. Good. <laughs> Volker has 20 years humanitarian experience, both as an implementer and as an evaluator. And he's currently the global advisor for monitoring, evaluation, accountability and learning at the Danish Refugee Council. And all the way over the, uh, I was going to say, uh, I was going to actually say which sea it was. I can't remember which sea it is. But anyway, all, all, all the way over in Nigeria, we have Shashwat Saraf. Uh, I think Shashwat is sitting in Abuja now. Hi, Shashwat. Good to see you. He's worked in humanitarian assistance since 1998 and is currently the country director with Action Against Hunger in Nigeria. And Shashwa is currently managing programs uh, to assist affected populations caught in this awful, um, acute, complex crisis in northeast Nigeria, where I believe there are over seven million internally displaced people. And finally, sitting uh, amongst the dreaming spires in Oxford is Sophia Switham. Hi, Sophia. Uh, she's an independent expert who specializes in consultative research to rethink international approaches to crisis. And she's got a background in program delivery, policy and leadership. And she's led and authored all kinds of influential studies for governments, multilateral and civil society groups. And of course, she also authored um, our papers on relevance. So I think. Um, the next thing to do is really to, to go straight over to Sophia, who is going to give us a, uh, a summary of the findings um, from the last annual meeting in, in Berlin, uh, which she has incorporated into a new me meeting paper. So I hope all of you can see the beautiful slide presentation that is coming up on your screen right now. And so, Sophia, if you can hear me, please, over to you. Thank you. All right, thank you. And, and John, can you just acknowledge you can hear me? I can hear you loudly and clearly, and I can see the slide presentation just as clearly. Yes, thank you. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you very much for that introduction, John. And, uh, and before I, I start to summarize the paper, I just wanted to, um, pick up on, on that contextual note that, that you made um, and just to acknowledge that that we all know that this is a, a very odd time to be launching this paper and I, I know that all the other panellists on, on this call and, and many of you who are participating in the webinar are, are grappling with this, this vast humanitarian crisis that's unfolding in, in front of our eyes. Um, and dealing with the implications for the most vulnerable people, as well as for your own agencies and, and of course, your own lives. And, and, and I must admit, John, that I, 
and I discussed this with you, I did have some concern about the, the relevance of having this, this webinar now. And I was concerned about somehow doing the very thing that the paper warns against and, and missing the mark. But we thought about it and, I, and, and very much think it's still important that we do discuss this now for, for two main reasons. And, and first, it's that this, this pandemic might represent a new experience for an unprecedented experience for us to be facing these these threats to our own livelihoods and, and lives and, and liberties. But it's not new to the populations that humanitarian aid seeks to serve. It's just different in nature. And, and second, that, that in this crisis, as, as in any other, we do need to still be taking a really hard look at how we can best provide what people really need within the many constraints that they and that we face. And we need to continually consider how this will need to change over time as, as this crisis pans out. So, so with that said, I'd like to very briefly talk you all through some of the main points of the paper and some of the key conclusions that came out of the annual meeting. And I'll do that very quickly in three parts. So firstly, I'll explain the reason why it's so important that we face the relevance question head on. And, and John, you touched on this. Secondly, I'll unpick what we mean by relevance. So we've got a common starting point and, and talk through the approach and framework that the annual meeting took. And finally, I'll try and summarize the, the very rich discussions that came out of the discussion, uh, the, the meeting last October in, in Berlin. Now, I'm not going to go into the examples of what all this looks like in practice. I'm just here to frame the top line ideas so that the rest of the panel can then explain what it looks like from their operational perspectives. So to start with that, that first part, the, the why relevance, why, why did ALMAP think that this was a necessary issue for the network to prioritize and dig into? Well, the starting point is that relevance is absolutely fundamental to getting humanitarian aid right. And, and we see it as a, a very obvious basic test because, after all, if people don't receive what they really need in a crisis, then something is going rather wrong somewhere. And yet, at the same time, although there's been lots of work that approaches parts of this relevance idea, this relevance test that we've been talking about participation, accountability, adaptiveness, for example, there's hardly been anything done to discuss it as a whole and think of it head on. And we know that this is important because, uh, as John said, there's a really clear problem of irrelevant aid out there. And, and we only need to look at the items on sale in markets around camps to get a flavor of this. For example, you know, we see the agency branded knives and forks that people never needed or used that are being sold to buy the stuff that they really do need and will use. And, and we hear time and time again of wasted aid, of people getting food that they can't cook, technology they can't use, latrines they can't access, even cash they can't spend, or of entire sections of society getting missed out altogether, and, and all because responses are designed or delivered in a way that fails to take account of what their real requirements are. Now, it's difficult and and it's probably also fairly pointless to put this relevant shortfall into into numbers. But we do see the deficit in, in attempts that there have been to take the temperature of the system and they give us some indication of the scale of the problem. So we've seen the CHS scorecard, the state of the humanitarian system report, surveys by Ground Truth Solutions. All of those suggest that humanitarians are much better at providing a basic standard package in the immediate aftermath of a sudden acute crisis, and that they struggle to meet people's real priorities in protracted crises or in less familiar settings. 
So we all know that this relevance deficit is real, and we've all probably seen examples first firsthand. But, but why is it happening? Well, all the discussions that we've seen all seem to come back to two big underlying problems. And again, John hinted at these in the introduction. We can very crudely characterize these as being, the, on the one hand, the Western-driven problem, and on the other hand, the supply-driven problem. Now, the first, this Western-driven problem is about how the origins of the system have shaped the way we do it, shaped its models and its culture, and about how its roots and its power and privilege and paternalism all hardwire it to fail to see the experience in perspectives of, of others. And the second, which is interlinked with that, is the, the supply-driven problem. And that's about how the structures and the architecture of the system um, constrain it. So it's about how the, the current incentives and structures of the humanitarian system, its, its business model, its sectors, its specialisms, its staffing, its supply chains, all of these shape and predetermine what it's able to provide. Um, as one source put it, when the system's armed with hammers, it only sees nails. And, and the way that these responses and these systems are set up and funded make it very hard for agencies to transcend their regular, their, their pre-set offer. So, so moving on to the framework for thinking about relevance, um, just to help us get our heads around this, this vast topic of what it means that, so that we can start to address it and address these relevance problems. And that's what the background paper for the annual meeting and the paper that we're launching today attempted to tackle. And it sets out a very simple definition and a conceptual framework to, to break it down. Now, in terms of a definition, of course, we've got the official DAC definition. Uh, relevance is one of the DAC's eight core, core criteria for evaluating the success of humanitarian programs. And it's closely linked to and twinned with the criterion of appropriateness. And, and aside from this, professional terminology, this, this jargon relevance is, of course, part of our own everyday vocabulary and experience. And, and simply put, it means relevance means being closely connected to what's important to us, being related to the main issue at hand and to what people really want or need. So as a very simple working definition, we can take relevance to mean just being in line with the priority needs of affected people. Now, of course, that's a very broad and it's a deceptively simple definition. And the framework that we took for the meeting tried to unpack this to, to get some granularity to, to, to really figure out what it, what it means. Um, and it, I, it did this in uh, breaking it down into 10 dimensions. And I think, uh, Maria, we've got the slide up which shows those 10 dimensions. So five of them are related to understanding what people require, and five of them are related to providing against these requirements. I'm not going to talk through each of these 10 dimensions in the limited time we have now. For those of you who want to know more about them, they're all set out one by one in the report. But I just wanted to make two general points about them. A first, um, I guess it goes without saying, but I'm going to take the opportunity to say it anyway, they are all interlinked. Um, understanding and providing inextricable parts of humanitarian response, not, not separate stages in a project management framework. And that's particularly true if we're aiming for programming that's adaptive to changing knowledge and to context and need. 
and it's particularly true if we believe, as, as John reiterated and the annual meeting seems to quite strongly endorse, that humanitarian action should be as much relational as transactional, that, that how we relate to people is as important as what we provide. And the second observation on this framework is that um, nobody said that any of this was going to be easy and that for each of the 10 dimensions we've explored, there's clearly no clear-cut textbook answers, right and wrong answers to the relevance test. Instead, there's sliding scales, which we, we illustrated in the report, along which we have to make some, some choices. And each of those sets of choices poses some pretty tough dilemmas for humanitarians in the real world, with the operational, organizational, and structural constraints and challenges that they face. There's dilemmas of expertise, those dilemmas of who knows best and who gets to judge. There's dilemmas of action, of what to prioritize and, and for whom. And there's dilemmas of boundaries, of when to stop and when to hand over and how to complement. And for all of these reasons, and because relevance isn't a, a static one-off achievement, humanitarians can aspire to just be more relevant rather than perfectly relevant. And that was the title of the, the paper. Uh, the, the aim is for, for that, that elusive humanitarian good enough, given the inevitable compromises that need to be made in any context and, and crisis stage. So moving now to taking this framework of the 10 dimensions, which we wrestled with in Berlin at the annual meetings, and we, we talked a lot about those dilemmas. What, what did we hear at the annual meeting? Well, we heard that despite the challenges, the difficult choices, there were many practical examples of efforts to be more relevant, and I think we'll hear more of those from the pan other panellists in a moment. And we saw some great practical tools as well, drawn both from the humanitarian sector, but also from the wider social justice sectors around the world. And we also heard some pretty honest and pretty brutal at times exposés of, of why and where we're still getting it wrong. And we heard some demands and recommendations for change which can be boiled down into five calls for action. And uh, Maria, if we could put that slide up now, please. And these are the five calls of action that are in the, the brief that's been shared with you. And I'm going to very briefly swing through those. So the first of these is uh, a call to expand the repertoire. And that, that's to take off the blinkers to responding to people's real range of needs. And it means becoming less dictated by pre-set sector-driven assessments and embracing open, multidimensional methods that capture the wide range of people's needs. And it means re reconsidering the repertoire of options for provision and support. And when we're not able to provide what people are telling us they really need, it involves some honest communication as part of what one participant nicely coined as an ethics of refusal. The second call was for a default to inclusion, ensuring a fair response for those marginalized members of society. And that means investing in putting many of the inclusion guidelines into practice, but doing so in a way that doesn't reduce people to tick box vulnerable groups. And, and intersectional approaches offer a, a good way forward here. And it means then tailoring solutions that equitably fit all segments of society. And we heard about several examples of this, including two practical models for tailoring, universal design and user-centered design. And one thing that we heard very loud and clear at the annual meeting was that we can't do inclusion and equity without better diversity within humanitarian organizations. 
And that demands a very honest look right from the highest echelons of leadership to the direct face of delivery within a culture of open reflection on power, on prejudice and on inequality. The third call was to work iteratively, to keep up with changing requirements to stay relevant. Now, we know that the shifting, protracted, volatile settings that are the humanitarian normal, we know that these demand a dynamic understanding and a shift from intensive upfront assessments to an ongoing learning process. And the annual meeting heard how growing investments in feedback and monitoring now need to become routine. They need to challenge what somebody called the, the linear tyranny of the old log frame and become part of a, an adaptive approach. So we need ongoing investment, not just in gathering feedback and information, but also in analysing and course correcting in response to this and in closing the feedback loop. Fourth, and, and very importantly, was the call to assume agency. Now, this means working with a starting point of people's own capacities and expertise. It means moving from a deficit needs model to a holistic understanding, which begins by seeing people in terms of what they actually have. So their support mechanisms, their skills, their rights, not just what they lack. And this very much builds on the self-recovery thinking that some sectors already use. And it means not just gathering numbers on needs, but stopping to ask people, what are you already doing that we can support? And that's really the foundation of co-designed assistance, which offers people the chance to genuinely participate in shaping solutions most relevant to their situation. It's a shift from imposing aid to facilitating problem solving and sharing power. We heard examples spanning from a call for radical handover decision making in peer, in peer allocated funding to, to collaborative models. And then fifthly, finally, was the call to think systemically, to connect, to connect the dots for collective relevance. Um, the polyphonic dimension, the polyphonic, one of the 10 dimensions in the framework, was all about hearing and handling multiple perspectives instead of trying to impose simplicity on complexity by, by editing out the voices that, that, that don't quite fit our, our version of reality. Um, now, but, but responding to these many different perspectives is, of course, beyond the scope of any single program or agency or sector. But although relevance is usually judged at the program level, no part of the response can do relevance on its own. It depends on it demands complementary assistance where connections are made between and beyond humanitarians. And throughout all these discussions was the call for true complementarity with local partners, a partnership based on a true on a true, on a genuine consideration of the added value of each party. And this needs to be based on solidarity, on trust and on equality, rather than on paternalism and, and subcontracting. So to conclude, running, running through all of these five calls for action, what we heard at the annual meeting was a real appetite to address some of the deepest issues that undermine the collective ability to be more relevant. Participants were both very honest about the reasons for relevant aid, and they were ambitious in proposing how to be more relevant. Many spoke of the need to turn the business model upside down, and some even urged subversion, subversion in the ranks of LNAP. Many called for a radical role change for international humanitarians, and that includes transcending the sector-based system, but it also goes much, much further. It involves turning over power and resources to those at the receiving end, 
who are both who are best placed to judge what's relevant. And it involves using expertise to support others to make decisions rather than to impose decision making. So many many people spoke of the need for international agencies to shift from seeing themselves as providers to becoming facilitators, brokers, and bridge builders. And this links very closely to demand for more locally led response, genuinely locally led response, which was a dominant theme over the two days in Berlin. And although we're, we, we're quite clear that being local doesn't automatically equate to being more relevant, can't be more relevant without being more local. So I'm going to wind up this, this very whistle-stop presentation of the paper here, but just with a couple of final thoughts. The aim of the annual meeting and, and of the paper that, that we're discussing here is, is not by any means to provide a definitive word on, on relevance so that we can just draw a line under it, get back to our day jobs and start planning next annual meeting theme. Instead, we, we want it to be part of a conversation about relevance. We want it to start a conversation about relevance, one which takes it from being one of those sideline criteria on, a, on an evaluation terms of reference to being something that we all have an active duty to work out how to do. And of course, an annual two-day meeting and a paper can't set out everything that this means in practice, but it can start to catalyze a new awareness of and a new commitment to improving relevance. And it can start to make sure that the relevance test is always front and center of everything we do because that's going to be critical if the humanitarian system is going to better provide what people really need. I'll, I'll close it there. Thank you. Sophia, thank you very, very much indeed um, for that uh, presentation. It reflects a tremendous amount of work, reading, research, writing, discussions, and so thank you so much for summarising it so succinctly. Um, just before I, I, I come back to you on one or two points there, I just wanted to tell all the online listeners that the, the, the study itself and, and the, the brief with the five calls for action, uh, also some videos of the presentation from the ALMAP annual meeting are available on the ALMAP website. So uh, please do, do check them out. But I wanted to start by uh, asking Sophia a question. Sophia, we came to you over a year ago um, to to ask you to to research and write this paper for us. So I know that you have uh, put a lot of time into it, a lot of thought. There's a lot of thinking gone into it. And over time, I suspect that you may have developed um, your own ideas and perhaps even changed your thinking uh, a little bit. And I wondered if you could tell us what you've learned yourself from being engaged in in this topic so so deeply for the past 12 months. Thanks. Goodness, thank you, thank you, John. Um, yeah, and it has it has been a year. Um, maybe I can I can break that learning process down into into three bits. I suppose there was the bit at the beginning when I was um, in the process of writing the background paper, uh, and then there was what I learned from the annual meeting, and and then there's some reflections on on the situation now. Um, on the process of writing the background paper, I talked a bit about this in, in Berlin. I think 
I started off quite naively thinking it was going to be a lot easier. I thought that given that it was a DAC recommendation and that everybody was uh, working against it in their evaluations, there would be a lot out there and that all I needed to do was to summarise it and um, maybe come up with a neat graphic and that would be it. Uh, it turned out not to be so easy. There isn't really anything out there that has brought together all the pieces of relevance before and that in itself uh, was a bit of a learning process for me that it, this was a, a gap and then I read the the very brilliant time to listen report uh, and thought again that my job would be relatively easy because that really said it all about how we need to to listen and act on what we hear from from communities um, and and there's uh, yeah that 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 report was massively influential uh, for, for my thinking, um, but but again it wasn't quite as easy as just summarising Mary, Mary Anderson and her team. I, I think when we started to interrogate how we actually listen, what gets in the way of us listening, and then what choices we have to make around. Um, acting on what we hear, um, that's where it became a lot more complicated again. Um, on the annual meeting and how that made me rethink, I guess I, I learned a great deal about some practical examples, what's already going on out there, and we'll hear some more of those in a moment from the other panellists. Um, one of the things I learned was that when I was writing the paper, I did wonder if I'd gone a little bit too far on the power and paternalism piece, and I was very surprised actually at the annual meeting how people were calling on me to go much further and I learned how people are in the sector are really ready to have quite a brave and painfully honest discussion on on prejudice and othering so I suppose I came out of that stage of the learning curve um, both more radical and more hopeful and then finally I suppose on, on the, the, the current situation um, my thoughts I think like everybody else is well, just catching up day by day and a little bit half-baked but there's three themes in the paper that, that seem particularly apposite right now. Um, the paper talks a lot about expertise and about relevance being uh, linked with sometimes a clash of expertise around and, and this idea of who knows best in any situation. Um, as I'm sure Ombretta and the other panellists will, will attest, I mean, we learned a lot about expertise and, and the clash of who knows best from Ebola. Um, and as the COVID-19 response unfolds, I think we're seeing that even in situations where the imposition of scientific expertise is, is justified and paramount, we do that without due relevance at our peril and that all of that must be rooted in, in a clear understanding, appreciation of culture and context and marginalised groups and language if it's to, to succeed. Um, there's a point on localisation, a reflection in the current time on localisation. I don't quite know how, nobody quite knows how it's going to pan out, but I think uh, the COVID response is going to be a game changer in some ways for, for localisation. And then finally, there was a point in the paper that um, resonated with quite a few people I spoke to, which was the point about empathy. Um, and 
in the annual meeting, we had not only international humanitarians, but we had people working in uh, the social justice section, sectors in, in, in the US as well. Um, and, and there was a, a realization that international humanitarians can earn an awful lot from community action and public service models taking place on their own doorsteps. And that doing so is, is not just about borrowing techniques, but it's an exercise in, in some very basic empathy, prompting us to ask, what would I want aid to look like if it were in my community? And, and I think the fact that COVID-19 is a global pandemic is, is potentially um, bringing home some of that empathy and, and prompting us all to ask that question of what would I want aid to look like? It were here. Thank you. Sophia, thank you very, very much for that. I think we I will come back to you later, but now I'd like to uh, go over to Ombretta, if I may. Um, and Ombretta, you're working on COVID-19 now. You have read yeah. the report, of course, you, you were at the meeting. I wonder, could you pinpoint the things in the report that are very, very specific and important to the work that you are doing now and tell us about them. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, John, and thanks, Sophie, for a great overview. Um, and uh, it seems like it, I'm having so many deja vu from the work we've done in Ebola and the work we're doing in COVID. One would think it's a very different rea reality that we're going through, but what I'm seeing in Italy now is a lot of what I saw in, in Ebola before. Uh, and it's um, is, is very hard to describe when I come from Italy and I see my country grow, going through a very difficult time. Uh, but what, what uh, connects me to the work we've done in Ebola, and I want to take you to that work as well, is, is being agile, being adaptive, adaptive uh, co-creating with the com community, and how much in this space the role of the community now more than ever is central to whatever we do. Uh, and it, it seems a cliche, but uh, in this situation, so I've been responding and working on COVID for since January now. Uh, and what's becoming evident is that, and especially in a, in a condition where movement are restrained, we're all on lockdown, uh, mo the, the majority of the countries that are going, getting into movement restrictions, no international people will be allowed in any country anymore, uh, and no international people will be allowed to go out of any country. So we are in a situation where uh, the local action is what counts. And I want to bring you now uh, to a very special community, which is the community in DRC. We are in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We are in North Kivu, northwest uh, of, uh, of uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. We are in Butembo a year and a half ago. A year and a half ago, uh, we, the internationals, have been kicked out of Butembo, attacked, uh, um, and really severely, uh, and uh, for many reasons, uh, this situation has gone really wrong. We are in the middle of the Ebola response. We have all the biomedical solutions 
we have a perfect uh, situation. Uh, all the uh, international uh, community is there. Uh, we're getting, we are in the country to support the community, but the community doesn't understand what we do. The community doesn't understand who we are, why we're there after two decades of, of conflict in DRC, why all of a sudden we've uh, gathered all there to support uh, a population in Butembo that has never seen any of us. And, and not even the government, the health system is broken. And all of a sudden they see all of us and this is, uh, we come in and we say, we're there to support you. But instead of saying what, what uh, as uh, Sophie was saying is, what are you doing that we can support? Uh, we came in saying, we're gonna find a solution for you, for your problems. And we've given this solution. So our learnings, from that time and our learning from two years of working hand in hand with the communities down there has been an amazing learning curve. So we've learned about something. Uh, so for me, what the two words that resonate is agile, dynamic uh, and, and adaptive. So what we've done there is something that we've never done in other uh, responses, which which is um, the biggest community feedback system we've ever uh, set in place, um, is a feedback system that has uh, involved 800 uh, volunteers on the ground based in Butembo, uh, as well as in other health areas in the country that have been collecting steadily and, and consistently uh, across over for over two years key questions, key beliefs, uh, and key feedback from the populations. And this piece of work, this piece of, of um, data that has been coming out of DRC has, has helped us in shaping the response and has helped us bringing these voices to the table of some of the key decision makers to change the way we were operating. This, though, I think the biggest learning we've done there is that, and in the paper is very clear, uh, there is no point in collecting feedback if you're not ready to act on it. And this, this is the biggest learning there. Um, what we've learned is that what matters is what action we, we, we roll out at a very localized level. So every community, every health area has had a different reality and is a reality which is very hyper-local, which means every stakeholder that comes from the outside and outside means outside that area is perceived as somebody that doesn't belong to that community, somebody that they wouldn't trust. So it's, it's around creating that listening structure where it matters at a very localized level. And, and also making sure that this listening structure is methodical, is based on a method that is not only anecdotal uh, listening, but is based on a methodological approach, which we've come up with. Um, this means that I need to trust the local organizations and I need to, to trust the local uh, communities and, and one of the key factors there is that we keep on highlighting how important it is that we 
they trust us, they trust our biomedical approach, they trust our services, they trust what we tell them to do, and we often oversight the other part, which is that we need to showcase that we're trusting them. So they've given us amazing suggestions and solutions that often, and I, I'm not hiding here, often as, as international players, we've, we, we've totally uh, ignored. And this to the point where they felt, they felt so ignored that, that they've acted on this, on us not acting on that feedback that they've gone into sometimes violent approaches. So the learning that has come from there for us is that we do not need perfect systems, but we need a good enough approach that is completely grounded at the, go at the local level. We also need an approach where uh, the community feels that they are in the driving seat. So the la the uh, one of the last deep diving and the one that I've appreciated the most has been around analyzing all the data set we ha we've, we've had to really uh, dive deeper into uh, what the community means by community ownership and, and how they feel around leading in their response. So they've told us over month and month that they wanted to be in the leadership. So it was pretty clear uh, what type of leadership they wanted to have, what type of suggestions they had for us for supporting them, and what community structures they had already in place that would enable this leadership. Now, sometimes it's easier just not to listen because it does challenge our system. Uh, and it does mean that we need to do things differently. And doing things differently means that we need to change a whole lot of what we do. Um, but I think, and I, and I, I, I don't want to say that the Red Cross has done things perfectly because we haven't, and none of us in the RC have done things perfectly. But I think we've gone to a point where all of a sudden, and I think, unfortunately, because of attacks and violence, we've realized that, yes, we need to do things differently, and that has been the turning point of finally looking at what structures are there, what have, how have these structures functioned or not functioned, how can we help these power structures that are in place to fulfill that role, and who should be the, the, the person and the structure in the forefront of this community planning. So we've moved from uh, listening and acting, and again, this dichotomy, us versus them, and uh, we do things as, as you say in the paper, as a provider, to more an enabler. And this has been, for me, one of the best experiences ever in terms of enabling uh, a, a community uh, action plan that where it's clear, where what the community is bringing into the, the plan and what the, the different agencies could support the community with. But the bottom line is that this is the community and the structure in the community deciding what they want to do. And us coming in to place to say, okay, what, what gap do you have in that plan that we can support? And uh, of course, is, is, is a journey. 
it took us two years to get to that journey. But for me, is is the journey that we're in now with COVID. Again, with COVID, we won't be allowed to access communities like we can't do. In, we couldn't do in Butembo for a long, long time. So we, meaning the international people, um, and this is down to supporting remotely the local organizations uh, that are there, that knows the community much better than we do, and going finally, probably, is, is really pushing us to that conclusion of the paper where we say uh, is, is moving away from uh, just having this on paper, how much local organizations uh, count now, to actually moving into the reality of COVID now, we're not there. The local organizations are, and the local communities are, and it's really up to them to take this action. Ombressa, thank um, you. For... Yeah, oh. I'm conscious of the time, so I'll stop here for now. Ombressa, thank you very much indeed. That came across really clearly, and it's very interesting to hear the way that you have moved to being a, an enabler by setting up all of these different um, uh, listening mechanisms. Um, it's also very interesting to hear that somehow the community feel as though they are in the driving seat now and they have taken on some kind of leadership. And I, I wondered, um, you know, listening to you, uh, I mean, I could imagine that, you know, it's taken two years to get to where, where you are now. But what, what, what kind of problems did you have? Let's say that the community had a different model of leadership to you. What's uh, or that you don't have the resources to give, give or provide the kind of aid that they would like to prioritise, or that you have a different worldview. There must have been some difficult conversations uh, yeah. in order to get to this position where you're feeling as though you're an enabler. It'd be great to hear a, a little bit from from you about how that actually happened. Thanks. Yeah, there's been. There are difficult conversations, and uh, I mean, the challenge uh, we've had over uh, is that uh, being uh, the Red Cross, the local organizations, and often an or the only organization that is present in some of the of the communities, uh, we're often uh, asked and seen as as the ones that will solve all the problems of the communities. The challenge we've had is also that. Uh, um, at the very beginning of the response, uh, as it happens in many other humanitarian uh, responses, but uh, so much so in uh, in uh, DRC, there's been an inju injection of funding, which has been really big for a very short period of time. And this, of course, has undermined our traditional role in terms of being uh, uh, an enabler and a provider on the ground that doesn't really um, um, uh, put money on the table of communities. We don't pay uh, uh, community leaders. Uh, we've never done. Uh, but this, of course, when we have a model uh, like that, when uh, uh, we create expectations that everything should be paid, then we're also asked to be in that uh, in that model, and this undermines often the local organizations. So we've had difficult conversations. We continue to have difficult conversations. We are there, and especially there, because is uh, is um, a militarized um, has been a militarized response as well, uh, where we're dealing with uh, 
uh, also militia and different groups and different stakeholders, different powers which sit uh, in different places in DRC, not necessarily in North Kivu, but also in, uh, in the capital city. I think the trust, though, that we've been, been able to establish with the community has, has helped us in these difficult conversations. So, uh, being there, being present, uh, where uh, consistently for so many years has helped us and, and uh, in having those conversations. So, yeah. Professor, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. That's really clear. I'd like to move over to uh, to Nigeria now um, and to, to ask Shaswat, um, from your experience, Shaswat, working with the difficult situation that you have in the northeast of your country, what are the things in the paper and Sophia's presentation that really resonated with you and why? Thank Right, John. So, getting right to it, uh, I would say what really resonates with me is the discussions around the whole working iteratively. And I feel that there are a lot of barriers. Some are external and some are internal, self-imposed, which prevent us on, from, on, on moving forward working iteratively. Uh, to, to, to make the response very relevant for the population that we are reaching out. Uh, I would want to touch three particular aspects of the barriers that prevent us. Uh, one, obviously, is the whole issue around funding and the funding mechanisms. So, Sophia has, has aptly put it, the whole challenge, the challenge, the linear tyranny of the log frame programming approach. I think we've talked we've talked at length over the years about about the limitations that a log frame approach to programming puts, and I think it's one of the biggest barriers that continues in terms of providing that space for iterations and to be able to change approaches or change programming in the middle of the project cycle. Uh, the the second aspect is around the whole issue of embracing uncertainty. I think whether it's donors, whether it's us, we, we, have this, we have this mental problem in terms of embracing uncertainty and working with uncertainty and saying we will move as things get clearer. Because we know it's very, very clear through our experience that the context changes. It changes with time. It, the context changes and the people's expectation and situation also changes over time. And if we are not able to change and iterate in terms of what the response looks like, then our response does become relevant. So it could have started as being relevant, but because we haven't changed to the changing context or to the changing needs or the changing situation of the people, it, it, it starts to become irrelevant. And I think that's that's very important. In terms of the coordination, the humanitarian coordination itself, from the process of putting together the humanitarian response plan to the sector coordination, I think we've defined everything in a very linear way. We have every single strategy, every single activity identified that needs to be done. The response is predetermined. And every actor 
engaging in the HRP or the sector coordination already commits to what they will respond to, what population they will cover, how many people. And I think making changes and moving away from this, from, from the commitment that you have to the HRP and to the sector coordination becomes another big barrier to, to making those changes. And then obviously our own internal, each organization has its own skill set, its own, its own technical temperament or technical bias. And I think it again becomes a barrier in terms of changing away from what we know to what we feel uh, we, we need to move to. I, I would stop in terms of talking about barriers, um, but I think a lot of examples which have also shown how the humanitarian response over the years has evolved and moved and changed in terms of identifying newer solutions to be more adaptable and more relevant to the uh, the, the case in point, which is very clearly identified in your paper, Sophia, is around cash programming, the adaptability, the process of cash programming. And I think the, the even, even non-material needs, for example, mental, mental health issues being addressed or protection issues being taken into account. I think a lot has moved, but there is still quite a way to go for us to be able to remove those barriers and be able to iterate and change as the situation changes and as the context changes. Thank you. That's what, thank you very, very much. That's really clear. Um, now, listening to what you're saying there about the, the constrictions of the log frame uh, and the, the difficulties of embracing uncertainty, I can imagine in a, in a, in a very fluid, fast-changing environment, very unpredictable environment in which you're working with, you're facing that all the time. I was wondering, um, I mean, do you, have you had conversations with, with donors about this um, in, in terms of their, are you finding that they are, have empathy with your situation, that they're sensitive to these uh, uh, difficulties of, of changing course and um, uh, reporting in, in a log frame type way? Are they, are, are, I guess what I'm saying is, are, are they being flexible with you or, or, or are you, you, you facing something that's too rigid? It will be interesting. I think people online will be interested to hear that. I think you see a lot of flexibility amongst donors, and there have been many multiple conversations with donors, given yeah. that the North Nigeria context has evolved and continues to evolve very, very rapidly. Uh, there is a lot more flexibility when we look at security access issues. So you see the donor's flexibility, you see very, very open attitude towards addressing. Yeah. But I still feel that we've not been able to address the issue of the log frame, the tyranny of the log frame in terms of how in the middle, the course of a project, an agreed project, are we able to say, let's pause, let's stop, because this probably seems to not be working and let's change it radically. I think we still are not at that stage, both as an organization, I would not want to put the blame, but I think as a collective humanitarian community, 
we, we need to reflect on how many times have we ourselves paused and said it's not working and we need to stop uh, and we need to change. And the same thing goes for the donors to be able to say that to be able to be open if if an organization does come and approach and says it's not working. We need to radically change our strategy and do a course correction rather than wait for the next project cycle to start. But we need to do it now. I, I think there is a lot of work to be done there. Well, let's hope we have some donors online and they heard what you said there. Listen, let's let's move over to uh, Copenhagen and to, to Volker. And really, Volker, to ask you the same question, if I may, what uh, particular things in the report re uh, resonated with you in the work that you were doing in, with DRC? Thanks. Thanks, John. Um, yeah, looking at the paper for me, um, what, what really sticks out as a big challenge for us um, is the um, issue of active inclusion and, and co-design at the beginning. But then also as an evaluator, how do we um, confirm later when we evaluate how um, relevant um, and how much people were actually involved um, in, in, um, in, in the response and in designing the response and shaping the response. So um, I was thinking about uh, the challenges we have, uh, for example, in, in, in uh, our humanitarian work um, at the moment uh, in Afghanistan, where we work a lot with um, people that are very um, recently displaced, um, that are basically newly displaced um, uh, populations for various reasons. And um, we basically um, are challenged by um, engaging with them and, and um, finding out what exactly um, they will need, what exactly their particular um, concerns are. And this is all often a very um, 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 a situation that is under time pressure because of the often the volatile uh, environment. It's, it's quite difficult to spend a lot of time in these communities. So there's some real challenges to active engagement with individuals in a, in a more meaningful way because having a decent conversation takes time. You need to build trust. Um, as we just heard from Ombretta, it, it's, these processes take, take time. So um, as much as we, we try and capture also um, what people's um, expectations and needs are um, beyond the, the sector questions that, of course, are also being pointed out in, in, in the paper as one of the constraints that we have that we think in sectors, um, the challenge that then comes up um, if people have needs that we cannot immediately address is how do we deal with that? How do we deal with these expectations um, and how do we um, help people in a, in a meaningful way when um, they, they're not interested in a particular part of the portfolio that's on offer. And of course, the, um, the common reaction of the system uh, for, for many years now has been cash, which has improved a lot of things. As Sasha just uh, pointed out, is that cash has given us a lot more flexibility to achieve relevance because people can use it for a lot of other purposes. And if we look beyond um, um, the immediate um, needs um, um, provided that the markets are available. There is obviously a lot more um, that people can do when they have uh, flexible cash um, in their hands. Um, however, in, in that regard, especially in, in protection, we have the experience not just in Afghanistan, but also in, in many other countries that uh, protection needs depend a lot, um, um, helping people with their protection needs depend a lot on available systems. And there are countries where systems are extremely weak. 
and we cannot even with uh, cash or other facilitation um, give people um, the professional uh, support that they may need for specific protection issues. And uh, there we run into a challenge that cannot in itself be um, addressed by the humanitarian system because we are short-termers. We come in uh, for a very short period with very short-lived money often. Um, and we have to um, then, to an extent, rely on, on systems that are already in place and maybe um, not um, strong enough to, to support these needs. So there's a lot of challenges there, but yes, um, the, the, the intention is, is, is very important and the active, um, being active about engaging people as much as possible in the limitations that we have is very important. But I just had also promised that I would briefly touch on the evaluation side. And um, in humanitarian evaluations, again, often for time, but also financial constraints, uh, in you know a few years back, we have not necessarily included the voice of affected people uh, very much in our evaluative evidence. But it's been a very good uh, positive trend recently, in my experience, that a lot more, especially of the large evaluations, um, are doing that very um, um, actively and prominently. And I just wanted to briefly mention an example of an interagency humanitarian evaluation that was just included, concluded in Ethiopia where um, quite a substantial investment was made in uh, uh, speaking to people that have experienced um, as consecutive drought responses in Ethiopia, which were evaluated, and um, really brought out a very different perspective um, and a very different stream of evidence in that evaluation as compared to the, the, the more traditional methods that were employed. And it just gives a lot more balanced view, but also hopefully um, then makes agencies also take that evidence that we get from evaluation in, in a much more um, a formative way and take it back into um, designing and also um, changing um, behaviors and approaches to our responses. Well, that's really yeah. interesting. Thank you very much. Listen, on this question of um, including the voice of uh, affected populations in evaluative material, I mean, you know that that issue has been around for a very long time, as as you know. And it's great to hear that some progress is being made. I I wonder. Um, you said it was an interagency evaluation, and it, it sounds like it was a, a bigger bigger evaluation. I wonder if you if the the reason that, that you were able to do that in that particular evaluation was that it was more time, more money, and more resources because it was it was a joint interagency evaluation rather than a single agency evaluation. And I wonder if you may have a, a view on the uh, relative uh, proportion of single agency evaluations to multi-agency multi -evaluation, evaluations that are out there at the moment. Because it seems to me that the joint evaluations, when they do come up with recommendations, based on better material, there's been more resources put into it, and they have the, the ability to, to leave a better change. Maybe uh, just a, a few thoughts on that from you would be very helpful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, John. I, um, you're absolutely right. Um, there is, of course, um, these are the the IAHEs, which is the, have their own system and their own fundraising mechanism uh, from a lot of the large um, um, UN agencies, um, um, of course. And there is, we were talking about very different evaluation budgets, and of course, it is easier um, to then also have substantial elements of of engagement with uh, affected people in the evaluation. But um, it is speaking to the fact that if we invest in a in a very good system-wide evaluation in a country, 
um, we can do a lot more. And the something I had also brought up at the conference um, on on the last day, um, uh, the the fact that we are stuck a lot in those end of project evaluations that um, we often feel uh, that they are a donor requirement and which may not often be always be a donor requirement, but there's a practice of doing those. And we spend a lot of effort and time on those and, and money, of course, that if it was pooled, then we could do um, a lot um, bigger but less um, evaluations that could explore a lot more different evidence streams. Um, we would get a lot more quality out of it. And there is a general commitment um, by um, a lot of agencies now to complement um, with uh, bigger evaluations and not overlap and duplicate all the time. Um, but there is a long way to go. We, we, those interagency evaluations are getting better. They're getting um, uh, more noted. Um, but at the same time, it's also everybody has to scale back on, on project level evaluations and maybe look at ways of pooling funding and pooling effort. Well, very helpful comments. Thank you. I'd like now to, to go over to some of the uh, questions that we have been receiving uh, online. Um, so we're, we're collating these and there's one interesting question that if I may on Bretta, I, I would like to put to you um, and it's, it's from uh, a lady called Mira who works for Geopol who you may, you may have come across. Uh, yeah. They work with us on the State of the Humanitarian System report, do a lot of work on uh, telephone surveys. But she's asking you, can you share what tools you use to collect feedback during the Ebola crisis? And are there tools from that experience that can help us now during the COVID pandemic? Yeah, thanks so much for the question. Indeed, uh, we are repurposing all the tools that we've used in DRC. We've made uh, the tools simpler and uh, made them available uh, to the coordination group we're working with, which encompasses uh, civil society organizations, uh, UN agencies. Um, and uh, our experience is a very simple one. So we have, uh, um, we have simple templates uh, and we have logbooks that uh, do a uh, a rapid automated analysis based on uh, a coding system that we are simplifying. So I don't want to get into the technical details, but just to say our experiences, keep it simple and, uh, and uh, uh, don't aim at perfection. So the response so far for the last two months has been act rapidly, don't be perfect, just go, go out with something. And we've done so. And uh, we've gone, uh, we have now very higher level uh, insights uh, from 24 African national societies. That perfect? No, it's not. But it gives us an insight of the offline conversations. Many of us are getting into analyzing online conversations. That's easy in a way because everybody's online, especially now in lockdown. What do you do? You go online. So is, I mean, there are sophisticated uh, tools outside there which are amazing. What we want to do is being able to triangulate that data online with what people are saying offline. Those people that no one is reaching now, that are off the grid and that needs uh, more support than ever. Uh, so understanding what's happening in those spaces that are in the dark. Uh, and I think 
Uh, I mean, there are many of us that have an added value in that space, others that have added value in other spaces online. So I think is the time now to come together. We have some tools, you have others, let's triangulate and see what people are saying uh, in different spaces and then go out with the information that is relevant to people. Uh, and again, going back to being relevant, we are relevant if we understand what conversations are going on. And these conversations are very interesting and they might be very different from what we are discussing in our agencies. And, and the, the type of questions, people are really smart and they've been in Ebola like they are in COVID. Their questions are becoming smarter and smarter, more precise. They have very precise questions for us. And while we've navigated uh, the system up until now with very generic information, they're very tired of uh, our generic information. They want more, uh, more answers to their questions. So, and that's again, bringing us back to being agile, being dynamic, not being perfect, but just go out with what people want now. Uh, and what this is what we're trying to do is that we're not perfect, but just uh, trying it out. So all. Say again. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah, I'll, all, I'll finish. Yeah, all tools we have are open source. You take them, use them. I knowledge we've been producing them, but do whatever you need to do with them, and I'm happy to um, uh, send them to you. Brilliant. Professor, that's, that's really helpful. Thank you. Good practical advice. Now, just to let you know that um, a, a few people have been interested by the uh, short conversation that Shashwat and I had about uh, conversations with uh, donors. And people are asking what other panelists' experience has been with this and how, specifically, how can we encourage donors to be more flexible? And can the panelists share specific examples of difficult conversations? Oh, that's a difficult question uh, that they've had with local recipients regarding relevance, distribution of aid, and how this was mitigated or settled. Um, so the the question is about uh, conversations with 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 donors, asking them to be more flexible. Uh, any experience there, and also on local recipients um, about differences of opinion uh, with the distribution of aid. Now, I'm looking at all four of you on the screen now. If one of you would like to answer that, that, those questions, can you give me a thumbs up and we can go to you? Or if you don't want to, we can go on to the next question. I'll give you five more seconds. No one's jumping for that. So we're going to go to a, another question uh, from uh, Veronique Barbelay from, from the Humanitarian Policy Group in the ODI. And she says uh, that the ALNAP paper calls for defaulting to inclusion. Uh, the inclusion of marginalized groups seems such a normative imperative given impartiality as a humanitarian principle. So in that case, why hasn't inclusion been a key driver of humanitarian aid? And what needs to be done to effectively default to inclusion? So why haven't we, why haven't we taken this issue of inclusion seriously, particularly as it relates to humanitarian principles? I'm sure one of you would love to answer that. Yes, I thought that might be Sophia. Go, Sophia, 
please over to you. Well, I'll, I'll just kick this off with um, some of the thoughts that, that were discussed at the, the annual meeting and made it into the paper, but I'd also be really keen to hear about it from the uh, perspective of operational agencies. And what really came out in the, the research and in the annual meeting was that uh, inclusion wasn't being taken seriously for a, a few reasons. One was uh, what people refer to as the, the dusty stack problem in the uh, Staff on the ground were wrestling to with a lack of resources, a lack of time, a lack of staff, um, a lack of ability to, to think straight, and then they were being uh, had lots and lots of different guidelines thrown at them. So there were guidelines on gender, guidelines on age, uh, guidelines to do with uh, sexual identity, um, too many guidelines, and uh, not enough time to to do anything about them so there was this sort of accumulation of what was a, a, a people referred to as a dusty dusty stack and we heard a lot about um good examples initiatives to to try and uh rescue these from uh, gathering dust on people's desks and and become much more of a, a an institutionalized requirement but i think there was the sort of inclusion overload problem I think the other problem that people talked about quite a lot was the issue of um, just a sort of fundamental problem of dealing with um, people as uh, fixed identities with fixed sets of needs. And that very often it was sort of quite a reductive approach that just saw people in quite a one dimensional way um, that they would have vulnerabilities because they're women. Um, and then maybe a separate set of vulnerabilities because they were older um, and that there was uh, a bit of a pushback from some people to, to that approach and a need um, that was identified to think about it as uh, a much more intersectional approach. And, and my sense from the annual meeting was while there was a strong buy into that, people were still scratching their heads as to what that actually meant in practice. So a couple of agencies uh trying to put that into practice but but people still not quite getting their heads around it um and then the, the final point um which was something that I, I said in the introduction was around um who is it what's the profile of the agencies that are trying to be inclusive and we know that who makes decisions at the top the profiles the identities of agencies actually makes a difference as to what gets taken seriously um, one of the, the books that I was reading when I was researching the paper that had nothing to do with humanitarian aid, but everything to do with it was the book Invisible Women by um, Caroline Criado Perez, which talks about the fact that um, if you have a, a world that is designed by, uh, by men, then the needs of women will be uh, ex excluded and missing from that picture. And, uh, that doesn't just go for, for gender, that goes across the board. So, so I think um, the job that the annual meeting did of getting us to take a hard look at ourselves, at diversity within our organisations um, along all sorts of uh, lines was, was pretty important. Um, so that's, that's the top line discussion, but, but I'm, I'm sure that the other panellists will have uh, direct experience of um, what gets in the way. 
Would anyone else like to, thank you, Sophia, for that. Would anyone else like to comment on this issue around inclusion? Yeah, if maybe so, I can comment. Uh, I can comment uh, briefly on that. Uh, and it comes um, a bit from the experience in Mozambique. And the challenge we find ourselves often uh, between reaching big numbers and reaching and supporting big uh, portions of population uh, when the needs uh, are so big, like it was in Mozambique uh, last year, right? I mean, I was there uh, during the emergency, the, uh, the needs were uh, very big, but at the same time, uh, we know that the niche of some of us, uh, some of our organizations are really to uh, cater for uh, uh, the most vulnerable people, um, people that have different needs, uh, and uh, and we know so. I, I think we are often pushed into different direct, directions uh, from and the often. And I I start with my organization. I think we want to fulfill all the needs and be seen as the ones that are responding to the needs on the ground. And by doing so. Um, we don't have often we don't have the capacity to do it to do it all so either we have the big numbers or we we really cater for very specific needs of of very specific populations uh, and these numbers are often small uh, so i think we're afraid that overall across different organizations say we are working seriously on inclusion issues but in doing so, our numbers are smaller because these are the people that are um, far away in the most remote uh, communities that are have the biggest needs, but they are not the big population, the mass. So I think we are often afraid of this, um, and hence um, we tend to shy away from uh, from focusing on on inclusion. Uh, much more seriously, um, yeah. And I and I wonder if other organisations have had the same uh, uh, challenge. I bet they have. I bet they have. Um, we'll leave that one there, if we may, uh, because I'd like to go back to COVID nineteen just for a second. We have a, a, another question from one of our online participants, uh, a gentleman called Patrick Seinch, who. Uh, works for CGD. My memory serves me correct. He used to work for DFID, but I may be wrong about that. But anyway, his question is as follows. If COVID-19 forces international humanitarian organisation to move from providers to enablers, which is uh, what uh, uh, Shashwat was saying earlier, isn't there a, res a risk to overwhelm local actors with multiple fragmented remote support? Um, and isn't there a case for that support and maybe organ international organisations themselves to be consolidated? So, so I'm just th thinking about about uh, about the, the the heart of this question. Um, so a, a lot of it is about the difficulties. I think Umbretta, you you were talking about it, and Shashwat as well about with COVID not being able to actually get to people, not being able to access access them and, and supporting them re remotely may risk a very, very fragmented uh, response. Mm. And we're not uh, we're not set up to 
collectively respond to this and so it would be very interesting uh if one of you maybe had a, a view on that and could answer patrick's question yeah sure so uh, there is a risk, uh, and this risk is already happening. Uh, there are, uh, and as I said, uh, there are many players now uh, that are coming into the COVID response, whereas like a month, two months ago, we were a few. Uh, mm. And it was easier, no? It was, uh, it was uh, easier in, in, uh, in a way. Uh, but of course, now, the whole world is affected by COVID and our entire lives are affected by COVID. So our entire organization, the IFRC, is responding to COVID. It's not an health emergency anymore. So now more than ever, we need to align both internally and with the different stakeholders. And it's not going to be easy, but uh, there is a journey that we started in risk communication and community engagement uh, that uh, has started uh, be before in terms of coordinating our approaches, creating collect collective systems, common approaches. COVID will accelerate that. Uh, so our life will never be the same, uh, mm -hmm. both work-wise and per our personal life. Work-wise, there's no way any single organization mm -hmm. right now will work independently and in isolation in this. And the donors uh, won't allow that for sure, and we shouldn't allow that for sure. So the local organizations are already overwhelmed with all our guidance and messaging and, and technical advice, including from before. So we owe this to them uh, and to ourselves because uh, um, is they are, yeah, the capacity on the ground is stretch. I mean, they are also dealing with other humanitarian crises. COVID is coming on top. So I think that um, the risk is there. I think we shouldn't we shouldn't really get into business as usual. Not now. Uh, and uh, is is too big, too serious. Um, and is we're seeing it everywhere. So in uh, from Europe where you wouldn't expect the situation we're going through, and let alone in Africa, where the situation will be even worse. So I think, um, yeah, it's, it's around really taking alignment, uh, coordination more seriously now than ever before, and coming up probably ex experimenting new ways of doing coordination. If what has happened before hasn't worked, let's change it now. And, and uh, this is... What we're doing now in discussing with UNICEF and WHO is like we need to try out different models. So, yeah. Good. We're at a watershed moment by the sound of it. I'm going to do, I'd like to come back to each of you for a, a final reflection on, on this whole event. But before I do, we'll do one more COVID uh, question, if I may. And it's an interesting one from Aline Krapani from World Vision International. And she's saying that we are starting to hear more and more calls for action in places that are already affected by humanitarian crisis, especially countries hosting refugee camps and IDPs, Syria, Bangladesh, etc. But there seems to be less said about urban slums and informal settlements that share a lot in common with the infrastructure of refugee camps. Are there any experiences you can share 
that could help highlight the needs in urban context better and bring those to the global agenda. So I don't know whether Volker or Shashwat or Umbretta are working with urban populations. Volker, please, go ahead. Um, thanks, John. I'm not sure I have an answer, um, but we we do um, we do engage um, with with urban um, refugees. We do engage with urban migrants a lot, especially in the North African context, where we where it's a, it's a huge challenge to um, to reach people who are a um, illegal in 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 many of those countries. So they are invisible. So we're talking here about another marginalized um, um, population. Um, and um, therefore, they all, all often live in a very distributed manner. So they um, are not in, you know, in, in a group that we can easily identify and, and provide services to. So in, in many ways, urban populations um, in, in, in this spectrum are a, a severe challenge because they challenge everything that the system is set up for to deal with a, a, con a defined group that is in a, in a, in a defined space. Um, that we can identify visually, ideally, and 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 then uh, provide services to. Um, our approach, to an extent, has a, has has been to um, invest a lot more in understanding um, their needs um, in a lot more uh, of, a, of, a, of a distributed manner in many ways, meaning that um, uh, uh, individuals um, that we connect with uh, spend a lot more time in in these communities in this uh, with this group and um, to understand. Um, what what the needs are and um, and how best to to provide for some of these needs. Um, of course, in many ways, cash is is again a very good um, way of, of of starting. But of course, there are protection needs um, that are a real problem in a in a, in a population that's not necessarily legal in that country and therefore not recognised to access services, even such services existed. So it is a huge challenge, and I can only imagine um, now that. Um, uh, COVID-19 um, is, is hitting those communities um, um, when you don't have the right to um, even the basic health services that are available in those cities. Um, it's it's a serious challenge. So we need to really, um, yeah, um, get get better, much better at connecting um, people with with uh, assistance um, in in very distributed environments now, um, or we will not be able to help. Well, thank you so much for that. Uh, we're coming towards the end of our time now. Um, and as one last thing, I'd like to ask you very, very quickly for your reaction to uh, one question, which is um, the, the five calls to action that we have uh, in the brief that Sophia wrote for us. Uh, I'll just remind everyone what they are. Uh, expand the repertoire. Default to inclusion. Number three, assume agency. Number four, work iteratively. And five, think systematically. Which is the most important one for you? Uh, if we could be quite quick with that, that would be great because we've only got a few minutes left. But uh, who would like to start on that? Okay, like, yeah. Right. I, I would want to focus on assume agency. I think it's very, very important um, that that this call is taken forward. And I just want to address one word that has been used in the conversation uh, the last or so of remote management and remote monitoring. 
I think to me, this term itself uh, defines how we look at the agency of the population. As soon as we as, as organizations are not able to reach a population and the population, the communities themselves are responsible for monitoring and managing and deciding on the response, we suddenly, we suddenly kind of start to use remote as a term, which to some extent has an inferior connotation in terms of the way the program is done. And I think that itself calls for us to reflect on the terms that we all use collectively and how we can strengthen the whole idea of strengthening the agency of the communities and the people. Thank you. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Shaswat. Who next? Volker, I think please. for a, yeah. Oh, one presser. No, don't worry. No worries. No, well, yeah, I'll be quick. Um, for me, very personal, for a long time, expand the repertoire. I really feel that um, the sector thinking is too ingrained in, in, in humanitarian assistance. Um, like Ombetta said earlier, we really also have to um, learn new ways of coordination. So maybe this is also an opportunity now to really break down some sector barriers and, and, and become a lot more multi um, multi um, um, needs and, and expand our repertoire. That would be um, great to see. Yeah, for me is uh, is definitely the work iteratively uh, and adapting uh, to changing environments. We've seen over and over how uh, communities are not um, they're not static. They change over time, and their needs change, their thinking change, their beliefs change, and we need to change with them to be able to be relevant and and be up to date. And also, I mean, move away from uh, like. Um, rolling out uh, very heavy surveys at the beginning, assessment surveys at the beginning, at, at the end. We're moving into a space that is much more dynamic, where, again, going with a good enough approach. We've had experiences triangulating almost real-time uh, real data from feedback mechanisms with social science data from smaller, uh, like, uh, formative uh, research done in a timely manner. So there is, in a humanitarian space, we need to be, again, I mean, faster, more agile, and have uh, a, a, a constant understanding of what's happening in the community. Sophia, I think you have the last, the, the last word. A very brief last word, if you may. Thank oh, you. Well, well, my last word is that uh, it's, it's great to hear everybody's um, particular um, priorities, but I think uh, they're all clearly in, inextricable, that the five of them work together. Um, and I suppose the, the, the answer to which of them is most important has to be um, which is the one that any particular agency is uh, doing worst at in any particular context. That's where to focus the energy that they really do need to be taken as a package. Ladies and gentlemen, we've come to the end of our time. Uh, I'd like to thank the panelists uh, very much, Ombretta, Abolka and Shashwat, for their insights and wisdom. That was brilliant. Thanks so much. I'm sure a lot of people learned a lot of stuff there. 
I'd like to thank Sophia for a great presentation as, uh, and commentary as, as always. And also uh, our IT people at the ODI, Rob, who has made this wonderful thing work without a hitch. So I don't know if Rob can hear me, but if he can, thanks a lot. It's, it's, it's worked very well. And also finally to mention Alice and Maria, who are uh, back, uh, uh, backstage, as it were, filtering the online questions. And so I think uh, I'd like to finish by thanking the online audience. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. And I wish you a very happy evening. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.